G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Have you made a public profession of your faith? Is your Christian faith a secret? Or does everyone around you know that you're a believer? Pastor Greg Laurie says it's an important question. Do people in your workplace know you're a Christian? Do people on your campus know you're a Christian? Make your stand for Christ publicly because Jesus said, if you'll stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. You mean if I just stand up in front of a few other human beings, you're going to stand up for me in heaven? That's right. What a deal. This is the day when the lost are found. This is the day for a new beginning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Again, you hear all the angels are singing. This is the day, the day when life begins. When you see thousands of enthusiastic sports fans at a stadium, do they keep their team loyalty a secret? No, they yell and they scream and they wear the team colours. Sometimes those colours are painted on their face. It's just a game. Do we have that same overt pride in following Christ? On A New Beginning, Pastor Greg Laurie helps us to see the importance of making our faith a public declaration. If our faith is a big secret, the question is, why? book of Nehemiah. By the way, this is our last message in the book of Nehemiah. So I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, We're in our series we're calling The Rebuilt Life. But the title of this message is, This is Not a Drill. (laughs) And uh, Nehemiah at this stage, historically, has gone back to Babylon. Remember that's where he was originally serving as the king's cupbearer when he heard the news that the walls of Jerusalem were lying in burned, charred out rubble. So Nehemiah made the journey to Jerusalem, funded by the king, even with an armed escort, and he rallied the people and did the impossible. They rebuilt the walls of the city. They prayed. They dedicated themselves to the Lord. They confessed their sins, and a great revival broke out. But now he's given a message that things aren't going well back in Jerusalem, and he needed to return. So let's backtrack a little bit, then we'll kind of get to the conclusion, but let's pick up chronologically where we left off last time. You remember, uh, Nehemiah returns, they rebuild the walls. Ezra is brought out of mothballs. He led the first wave of Jews returning to Babylon. He helped to rebuild the temple. He had been largely inactive. They bring him out again. He reads scripture to the people for three hours. Then they confess their sins to God for three hours. And there's this great revival that breaks out. And now the people make a series of very significant commitments to the Lord. And that's where we pick up. We're in Nehemiah 10. Point number one, if you're taking notes, they surrendered to the Word of God. They surrendered to the Word of God. Nehemiah 10, 28. 
Then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand. They swore an oath. They bound themselves with an oath. And they swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses. They solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We'll stop there. So this is serious. Now they're siding on the dotted line. You know, you can go look at a car all you want. I love this car. I might buy this car. I want to get this car. And one day you say, I'm going for it. So you go in and you say, I'm ready to buy the car. And they bring out hundreds of sheets of paper that you have to sign. Sign, 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 and sign. And then they give you the keys to your new car and you get in it and you drive it off the lot and it drops in value by $3,000 before we even got your first tank of gas, right? Or you sign on the dotted line and say, I'm going to buy this home. I'm committing myself to purchase this property. Now you must keep the commitment you've made. That's what they were doing here. The same is true when you stand in front of um, a pastor and before your friends and family and state your vows to your husband or your wife-to-be. You're making a commitment publicly. And that's why I think it's such a great thing to make a public stand for Jesus Christ. You sort of seal the deal. When you're baptized, that's a public commitment. People can see it. They should see it. When you make that first stand in front of your non-believing friends at your workplace or on your campus and you say, I am a Christian. And you know they're going to be watching you like hawks. Why? Because they want you to do well? No. <laughs> because they want you to do really badly so they can say, ah, hypocrite. Right? They don't want you to do well because when you walk closely with the Lord and they see the transformation in your character, it drives them insane because they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I love public profession. Have you made a public profession of your faith? Does your family know you're a Christian? All your family, your extended family? Uh, do people in your neighborhood know you're a Christian? Do people in your workplace know you're a Christian? Do people on your campus know you're a Christian? Do people that follow you on social media know that you are a Christian? Make your stand for Christ publicly because Jesus said, if you'll stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. If you'll confess me before people. If you'll confess me before people, Jesus says, I'll confess you before the Father and the angels in heaven. What a deal. You mean if I just stand up in front of a few other human beings, you're gonna stand up for me in heaven? That's right. Okay, I'm all in. Okay. So, you make your public stand. Now often we'll say we believe the Bible. We'll say we love the Bible. And we will quote the Bible. But will we surrender to what the Bible says? This is the big question. Don't just quote it to me. Don't just say how much you love it. Will you surrender to what the Bible says? Let me restate it. Will you surrender to what the Bible says on every single topic? I used to have a little plaque uh, years ago that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Does that sum up the way you feel? We'll come back to that point in a moment. Point number two, they separated themselves from ungodly influences. 
They separated themselves from ungodly influences. Look at verse 28. Then the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of the Lord. We promise to not let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not let our sons marry their daughters. Note the cause and effect. They separated in order to obey. Look at it again. They had separated themselves from the pagan people in order to obey the law of the Lord. Listen to this. If you want to live a godly life, you will need to separate yourself from some things and some people and in exchange surround yourself with other things and other people. Someone sums it up perfectly. It says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice the words that are used. First this guy's walking, then he's standing, then he's sitting. First he's walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. Sort of like, let's say you're on a diet, so you have to walk every day, good walk. So you decide to walk right by your favorite donut shop just when they're making the donuts fresh in the morning. Mistake, but you do it. And you're walking by. I'm walking, I'm getting exercise. And you look in the window. First you're walking, now you're standing. Next thing you know, you're sitting. Not just at a table, you're in the vat of raw donut dough, right? You can't wait. That's how sin works. It's a progression. So don't do that. If you want to be a blessed man, a blessed woman, or Change the word blessed with happy because it's an interchangeable word. Happy is a man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in it does he meditate day and night. Let me paraphrase it. He loves to read the Bible. He loves to hear the Bible preached. He loves to hear songs that have verses from the Bible in them, he loves the Word of God and he meditates, which means he thinks about it, he ponders it, he considers it day and night. So you had to separate from one thing and join yourself to another. You're listening to A New Beginning with Pastor Greg Laurie, the Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California. And he's presenting his final study today in the book of Nehemiah. It's a message called This Is Not a Drill. Let's continue. A word to you who are single. Don't even think about marrying a non-believer, okay? Trust me on this. Even better, trust the Word of God on this. You don't want to go there. Well, you know, I, maybe I'll lead them to the Lord. Okay, yeah, maybe you will. <laughs> and maybe you won't. And chances are you won't. And I'll explain that in a moment. But if you're a single person, you want to look for a godly person. So maybe you're going out with someone right now and I'd ask you, well, are they a Christian? Uh, yeah, they say God a lot. <laughs> really? <laughs> Let me restate it. Look for someone that's even more godly than you. Not less so. Where there's no question that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, the three most important decisions you're going to make in your life are, number one, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Number two, what are you going to do with your life? And number three, who are you going to marry? Three most important decisions. You can get number one right and mess up two and three and have a really miserable life. 
believe in Jesus, but then go and marry a non-believer. Or believe in Jesus and make a bunch of bad choices in your life. You need to get all three of these right. The problem with the Israelites is they had a constant problem with this. They kept getting pulled down by ungodly people. They would intermarry with pagan people and end up doing pagan things, you see. And that's usually what happens when believers marry non-believers. See, the problem is generally the believer does not pull the non-believer up, but rather the non-believer pulls the believer down. I could illustrate right now. I could pick someone out here in the front row, someone much smaller than me, and I could say, I'm gonna pull you on the platform. And I would take hold of your arm and with my considerable strength, <laughs> I might be able to pull you right up here on the stage. But the chances are, even though you're much smaller than me and weigh less than I do, you could probably pull me off the stage more easily than I could pull you on the stage even if I were stronger than you. Why? You have the pull of gravity working for you. So in the same way, when I'm with a non-believer, it's easier for me to go their way than it is for them to come my way. The only way they're gonna come my way is if they're born again, if they want Jesus. But the way I could go their way is I still have an old nature. I'm still potentially drawn to sinful things. So this is where the problem begins. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers for what fellowship does light have with darkness or righteousness with unrighteousness? Are you gonna eat at the table of the Lord and also at the table of the devil? Another translation puts it this way and I like this translation. Don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership, that's war. Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would even think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? See, when you combine certain things, problems can ensue. You can take nitro and you can add glycerin and you have an explosion. In the same way, you can take bleach and ammonia and they can generate chlorine gas that is both toxic and deadly. And that can potentially happen with a believer and a non-believer. It's not a good result because it's gonna be detrimental to the believer. Now, having said that, when, while I'm, when I'm saying don't marry a non-believer, I'm not saying don't have contact with non-believers. Uh, because how are we gonna reach people with the gospel if we don't have contact with them? Separation does not mean isolation. Paul actually wrote about this to the believers in Corinth. And understand, Corinth was a really wicked place. When we talk about the Corinthians, we could have just as easily called them the Californians. First and second Californians. Because the issues of Corinth apply to California. Uh, a lot of immorality, a lot of crazy stuff going on. So these are Christians living in a super pagan culture surrounded by idol worshipers and all kinds of other things. So when Paul's writing to them, they're dealing with some issues that are similar to what we might deal with today. So Paul writes to the believers in Corinth and he says, don't associate with a so-called Christian if they indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or worship idols or are drunk or are a cheat. He took it a step further and says, don't even have a meal with them. Wow, really? Isn't that being a little judgmental? 
and mean? No, actually it's being loving and at the same time careful. How could avoiding people possibly be loving? Because if you love them enough, you'll tell them the truth about what the Bible says. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, and they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend or doing drugs or getting drunk, you say, hold on, you say you're a Christian, why are you doing this? The Bible tells you not to do these things. Hey man, don't judge my journey. Really? You're actually saying that? Yeah, but don't judge my journey. Buddy, I'm gonna judge your journey and you with it, okay? Craig, the Bible says judge not, judge not, judge not. I don't know any other verse, but judge not. <laughs> yes, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, judge not lest you be judged, right? What does it mean? It means condemn not lest you be condemned. I'm in no position to condemn a person, to say that person's going to hell. I don't know their heart. I don't know everything about them. That's not my role. But I am supposed to judge people, which means evaluate where they're at spiritually. I'm supposed to judge myself, the Bible says. We make evaluations every day about all kinds of things. And does not the Bible even say judgment begins at the house of God? So if you're a fellow Christian and you're doing things that contradict the Bible, I'm gonna call you out on them, not because I wanna hurt you, but because I wanna help you. Because you're on a destructive path, and I want you to turn around. <laughs> Galatians 6, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right path, and be careful you don't fall into the same temptation yourself. So yes, I wanna help them. Because the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That means, okay, man, I love you, and I'm gonna tell you the truth, because I love you, and I don't want you to go down this path. Now, having said that, I still need to have contact with non-believers because Paul continues on, and he says, now, I'm not saying avoid non-believers, 1 Corinthians 5.10, who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheap people. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. You might be surprised to know that when I have friendships with non-believers and I have friends that don't know the Lord and we talk and I stand for what I stand for and they know what I believe, but I don't expect non-believers to behave as believers. But I do expect Christians to behave as Christians. But if you're ignorant, you don't know what the Bible says about this and that, I'm not going to harp on those things that you happen to be doing as much as I'm gonna to try to point you to Christ because once you come to Christ, all those other things will get sorted out. So that's my main objective with a non-believer. Bring them to Christ. That's Pastor Greg Laurie with some practical insights based in the book of Nehemiah. It's well worth a read. And there's more to come as Pastor Greg shares further insight from the final study in this series called The Rebuilt Life tomorrow at the same time. I hope you can join us right here on A New Beginning. Now, for a copy of Pastor Greg's full message from today, get in touch with Vision Christian Store. It was called, This Is Not a Drill. Just go to visionstore.org.au or call 1-800-00-50-11. Station sponsor. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 